Welcome to the Healthy Habits for Life podcast. I'm Dr. Carol Perlman, a psychologist, health coach, and married mom of two boys. I went from a frazzled mompreneur who hits news until the last possible moment to a vibrant business owner who jumps out of bed at 5 a.m. excited about my day. I once felt completely overwhelmed by my endless task list, but have learned how to work smarter, not harder, by studying health habits, mindset, and time management. I love to teach others how to implement top recommendations for health, happiness, and success. Yes, busy moms can learn how to stop picking at your kids' leftover food, create a daily exercise routine, and stay on top of the to-do list so you go to bed feeling fantastic about your day. Tune in each week as I share my best strategies for creating and sustaining daily habits for a healthy lifestyle and chat with other experts in the health and wellness industry. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Perlman. This is the Healthy Habits for Life show. Welcome back, everyone, to the Healthy Habits for Life podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Perlman, and I'm so glad you have joined me for another episode today. I have with me Dr. Suzanne Coven, and I am really honored to be able to call her a new friend and introduce her to all of you. So welcome, Suzanne. Thanks so much for having me, Carol, my new friend. Yes, it's my pleasure. And I'm really, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. So I'm so glad we're finally making it happen. So let me tell everyone a little bit about you and how I came to know you. Uh, Suzanne is a primary care physician and the inaugural writer in residence at Massachusetts General Hospital. She's also a member of the faculty at Harvard Medical School. Her writing has appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine, the Boston Globe, the Lancet, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and many other publications and has been featured on National Public Radio, or NPR as we know it. Her memoir that just came out this May, so as we record this, this is actually beginning of June, and her memoir came out one month ago, Letter to a Young Female Physician, Notes from a Medical Life, and it was published by Norton and Company. And Suzanne lives with her family near Boston. So, wow. Um, we are in the presence of great company. I, again, am so honored. The feeling is mutual. To be here with you. Thank you. So I have lots of questions lined up to, to talk to you about today, but let's start off and tell everyone a little bit about who you are and the career that you've had and kind of where you are um, in your career at this point. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I'm 64 years old, so this is a a long story, but, uh, and it's a, and it's a, it's a whole book, but I will, I will contract it um, greatly. Uh, So uh, I grew up in New York, but I've lived here in the Boston area for 30 years. Uh, I was an English major in college, went back to school after I graduated uh, and uh, uh, took the courses required to go to medical school. Uh, And um, really the first few decades of my adulthood were occupied with uh, starting a practice, growing a practice, starting a family, growing a family. Uh, And it really wasn't until middle age that I came back to my love of writing and literature. And at the age of 52, I started an MFA program in nonfiction. Uh, So for those uh, listening who have uh, middle-aged writing aspirations, it's not too late. Sometime uh, around that time, uh, I uh, started writing a column called In Practice uh, Monthly for the Boston Globe about my experience of being a doctor. And um, 
those columns and other uh, essays on that topic grew into this memoir. It wasn't until I um, I uh, worked with an editor uh, on on uh, the many pages I first gave her that I realized that I really have lived a medical life. I was the daughter of a doctor, the wife of a doctor. I'm a doctor. Um, I'm the uh, daughter of patients, the mother of patients, and I've been a patient myself. So this is a book uh, about really what it's like to have a body, take care of bodies, uh, and figure out who you are in the process. A small little topic in there, right? <laughs> Not much. Yeah. Um, well, what a journey it must have been. I know it's really hard to summarize a really deep, meaningful career and span of your life into a nutshell like that. Um, but I'm curious. So I'm trying to remember. So I have read the book and it was really, it was really captivating. It's been a long time since my, because my kids are still kind of young. It's not all that often that I can really get engrossed in a book. And so it had been a long time since I could really dive in and spend the whole weekend reading. And I just couldn't put it down, to be honest. I was really captivated by the story that was unfolding and um, really enjoyed following your career and kind of the journey and the progression of your, your personal development. So I know it's a lot to sum up, but what is it like as a woman? Um, and just to be a physician, there's so many different facets of it, of that. So what is that like? Hmm. Well, it's a, it's a great joy and a, and a privilege. Um, you know, we hear so much now about unhappy doctors, burned out doctors, um, you know, certainly in the last uh, year and a half, it has been very difficult uh, to be a doctor or a nurse or anyone in healthcare. Uh, and um, particularly for women, we have a long way to go to reach equality in every possible, um, by every possible measure you can imagine, uh, harassment, pay gap, promotion gap, and so forth. Um, so there's a there's a lot of uh, negativity about uh, doctors in the news, and it's not exaggerated. Having said that, uh, I love it, and um, most of my colleagues love it too. These things are not incompatible. It's a very unique thing uh, to meet a stranger and um, introduce yourself and then have them tell you their most intimate uh, secrets and uh, fears and joys uh, to disrobe in front of you. Uh, these are things that perhaps we take for granted as well. That's just what doctors do. But it's really quite a sacred relationship. It always has been. It always will be. And, um, and, and I've I've never lost my joy in that. I'm not, um, you know, I'm not naive about the challenges and I certainly have my days uh, when I want to throw my hands up, but I have not lost the joy of it. As a woman, and that's really what this book is about, there's sort of an extra layer of joy and an extra layer of challenge. Um, and... Um, that was true for me really from my earliest childhood 
uh, when I began to contemplate going into this career. How old were you? I'm trying to remember what you said in the book. How old were you when you decided you wanted to become a physician? Well, um, so I thought about it when I was really little, but here was the problem. So my father was a doctor and he, um, as I said before, just to put it very simply, you know, this was the sixties. So he wore pants and went to work and did fun stuff. And my mother, who was equally intelligent and ambitious, uh, wore a really tight girdle and stayed home and seemed really bored. So it was kind of a no-brainer who I wanted to be like, except, hmm, dad was a man and I was a girl. So how was that going to work? And it was the 60s. And it was the 60s where, as I say in the book, um, you know, this was an era in which uh, girls in the New York City public schools where I uh, I went to elementary school, I had to wear skirts, even in cold weather. And wearing skirts meant you wore tights and tights were itchy. And I hated itchy tights. And therefore, I didn't want to go to school. Uh, and it just the whole thing seemed to me a really bad deal being a girl. And, uh, you know, I, I think that confusion about gender and ambition and the possibilities of who I might become followed me well into adulthood in a variety of ways. That's probably something that a lot of people don't talk about, you know, that what what's behind that decision and all the different elements that you have to factor in as you're making it. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I, I didn't grow up in the 50s. Uh, I, I wasn't a young woman in the 50s. I was a young woman in the 80s. Uh, I was told I could be anything I wanted to be. I mean, this was well beyond second wave feminism. And yet, um, you know, it, 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 it didn't seem quite as open and full of possibilities uh, as it might have been. Um, and you know something, Carol, I, this is something I really only fully appreciated in retrospect as I wrote this book. As I was going through it at the time, I think I kind of had blinders on and I told myself, well, look at me. I'm a doctor. I'm, I'm doing great. Uh, isn't it amazing? There's no sexism. I can do whatever I want. I can have a baby during residency. Isn't this amazing? Aren't I lucky? And it's only years, years later, after my kids are long grown and I'm a grandmother, that I sit down and I look back at this. And I said, wait a minute, there was a lot of sexism. There's still a lot of sexism. Yeah, you had, a, you had a baby when you were a resident. That was amazing. There was no maternity leave policy. And you were on your feet 100 hours a week, and you ended up on bed rest with a life-threatening complication because you were afraid to ask for any accommodation. So maybe 
it wasn't so great. Mm -hmm. And then the question arises, huh? So why, why didn't you see that? Why didn't you see that? And this is a conversation I've been having virtually (laughs) around the country with women of uh, across the age spectrum. What is our relationship uh, to the male-dominated, patriarchal, sexist uh, sea in which we swim? I think that um, it would be sort of intuitively um, uh, something, you know, a conclusion that you would arrive at and say, well, you know, back in those days, things were still kind of you know, new. We were coming off the hills of the 70s. Things hadn't completely evolved. But thank goodness women today don't feel this way anymore. Definitely. This is not true. And in fact, when uh, one thing that was very important to me, especially given the title of my book, Letter to a Young Female Physician, is that before it went to press, I had a bunch of young women read it, medical students and residents. And I kind of held my breath a little uh, as they, you know, had the draft. And I was thinking, they're going to come back to me and say, you know, okay, grandma, you know, that must have been really tough. But um, This is like completely irrelevant. That's not what they said. They said, maybe the language is a little different. The form's a little different, but this is what it's like for us now too. As a, as a writer, that made me very happy that, you know, young readers were resonating with my words as a woman. It horrified me. How is it that, I mean, I was an intern. I started my internship 35 years ago, this July 1st, 35 years ago. And in the big picture of things, not a lot has changed. And that is, it. that is such a, it's like looking in the sun. It's such a, to me, such a, a astonishing truth that I can hardly believe it myself. So is that something, I mean, I'm, I, I think you've mentioned different reasons why you wanted to write the book and I want to get into that, but is this mm-hmm. one of them, you know, one thing that you'd like to see change because of your writing and your starting to share of these stories? You know, why one writes a book is such a complicated question. It's a very, very big undertaking. Um, probably one that you wouldn't, it's like sort of like childbirth. If you knew what it was, you probably wouldn't get started on the adventure in the first place. And then of course, once it's over, you say, yeah, I'd do that again. That wasn't so terrible. I mean, that's how the human race gets perpetuated. Um, but, um, but you know, there were a number of reasons I wanted to write the book. And one of them certainly was a feeling that I had arrived at a stage in my life and my career where perhaps I had something to offer, particularly um, younger women and also men. And I will say that part of my role at Mass General is I I do a lot of um, coaching and mentorship of healthcare workers 
uh, particularly around writing, which is of great interest to members of the medical community. And, um, and um, you know, I have conversation after conversation, particularly with young, smart, capable women who um, torture themselves with, um, with um, self-denigration in very much the same way that I did. And when I wrote the original essay by the same name um, in the New England Journal of Medicine four years ago, that those women were really who I was talking to and basically saying, hey, you know what? If I knew now, if I knew then what I know now, the main thing I would do is not waste so much time listening to that inner voice that says, you're not as good as everybody else. You're not as smart as everybody else. The only reason you got into this school, got this position, got this advancement is because there was some kind of fluke or luck of the draw. Oh, and by the way, we didn't even get started on this because I address this extensively in the book, as you know. And by the way, you're too fat and you really need to do something about this. You know, this is what the writer Anne Lamott calls the bad radio station. There's a, she has a, a term for that, which I won't repeat if this is family, you know, family you podcasting. You it's okay. Yeah, oh, that's right. Okay. So she calls it station K-fucked. <laughs> I think it's K, because, you know, it's got to be a K because she was out in California. Yes. K. FKD, I believe it is station K fucked. That's really and, and, and you have to, you know, I say you have to turn off station K fucked um, as you know, like the kids used to say, as if, as if it's so easy, took me till my fifties to turn it off. So, I mean, this is the heart of what I want to get at today. So can you distill, I know it's a lot easier said than done. Can you distill into tactics how you learn to do that? And how would you advise others to learn how to do that? Sure. So this is by no means a recipe or prescription because by its very nature, this is something that's going to have to come from within. You're going to have to, you know, replace station K fucked with a different inner voice. And, and it's not for me to tell anybody else what their inner voice um, should sound like. I can tell you what happened with me and perhaps that's helpful. Yes. The first, the first thing I started to do is be honest about how I felt and started sharing it openly. And as a writer, I mean, when I say share it openly, I mean, really share it openly. I mean, like with thousands and thousands of people. And when I did that, kind of a funny thing happened which is that, um, you know, that, that piece uh, in the New England Journal, Letter to a Young Female Physician, which I talked about my own experience with imposter syndrome, uh, that, was, uh, that was accessed 300,000 times, just about. And, um, you know, I was a little apprehensive at the beginning. I thought, gosh, what have I done? This is so embarrassing. This is career suicide. You know, who would want to go to a doctor who thinks she's a fraud? But that's not the way it was read. And I think when we are open about our own uh, flaws and foibles and vulnerability, what we find is that other people actually judge us less harshly 
not more harshly. And uh, in fact, they don't really much judge us at all because what they're thinking about is their uh, um, foibles and vulnerabilities and flaws. And in fact, of all the mail I got about that piece and the mail I'm getting about this book, not one of them says anything about me. Nobody cares about me. What they care about is the way in which um, the ways in which um, this material resonates for them. So that's the first thing, Mm -hmm. which is if you're open about these things, what you start to find is that this thing you think is so secret and private and shameful is actually nearly universal. And that really kind of defangs it because you know, if if we're all listening to Station K fucked, then it kind of loses its impact a little bit. It's not like, oh my God, this is my horrible secret, and if anybody finds out, you know, I'll just it'll just be mortifying and humiliating. Well, I mean, they can't find out because you told them. Anyway, so that's the first thing. It's just sharing light on the boogeyman. Exactly. Shine the light on the boogeyman, you know, the oldest trick in the book, but it works. And the second thing I think is to really start to look at it, these feelings in a, in a critical scientific way. In other words, as I sometimes like to say to myself, try not being a judge, try being a scientist instead. So let's let's take a look at some of these things. Okay, first of all, um, you're an imposter. You're a total fraud. Here you are. You're in your fifties. Say you're a total fraud. Nobody's figured it out yet. Well, you you must you should get an Academy Award because you have fooled hundreds of people at this point. I mean, it's really just quite amazing in your personal life and your professional life. Nobody has figured out what a complete phony incompetent you are. And you've just trotted merrily along and, and, you know, succeeded at work and succeeded at home and, and somehow nobody knows. So you must be a really great actress or maybe it's not true. The second thing is um, that, uh, you know, related to that is that um, there are a lot of incredibly competent people who have had these feelings. So people like Serena Williams and Meryl Streep and Sonia Sotomayor have talked openly about having imposter syndrome. Well, if Serena Williams is an imposter, then what does it mean to be real? I mean, come on, right? So it all, it all sort of breaks down there. I love that, that distinction between it being a judge versus a scientist. That's, that's right. So let's, let's, let's take, let's let the scientists in on the weight thing. Right. Okay. So, so you, you know, there's a show on station K fucked. I really should send Annie, Annie Lamont a check after this. Okay. There's but there, but I can't say it any better than she did. So let's suppose there's a show that you like to listen to on station K fucked the I'm fat. I'm lazy. I have no self-discipline. And if only I worked out regularly and ate better and were thinner, I'd be healthier and I'd be happier. Okay. So first of all, um, my patients tell me all the time how lazy and undisciplined they are. And I feel like saying, dude, 
you have two jobs, you take care of your elderly mother, you have three kids, one of whom has special needs, and you're the head of the PTA. I'm not thinking you're lazy and self-disciplined because, you know, you ate a hostess cupcake. I mean, that's just not how that works, right? So that that's that's just simply not true. And then how about this other thing? Well, if only I did this, I would have this, and then I would feel that. Well, all right. Has there been a time in your life when you were thinner? Were you happier? Were things different? They weren't. And the reason they weren't isn't because there's anything wrong with being fit or healthy. It's because it's because the, the fat isn't the issue. That's not, if you're unhappy, the fat isn't the problem. And so, you know, I say this as if, oh, I'm so above all this. I mean, I struggle, I still struggle with this all the time. You know, I um, in fact, um, just yesterday, I had this conversation with myself in the shower. I said, oh, you know, you're, 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 uh, you really need to tighten up that diet because, you know, uh, uh, starting in January, you were doing so great, you know, and you lost a few pounds and, you know, you really need to sort of get back on the wagon and get back on track. And then I said, no, wait a minute. What was different a month ago? What, was I was I more self-disciplined then? Was I more, quote, on track then? No. I was exactly the same person I've been for 64 years. What was different then was that I was a little less stressed. I wasn't on a virtual tour where uh, I'm doing uh, events every single day. Um. Uh, I was getting more sleep uh, and I was just feeling a little better and therefore uh, a little less likely to self-medicate with food. Therefore, what is the solution? Is the solution to add more stress by berating myself for not being on track? No, the solution is to chill the F out and to relax and to focus a little bit more on sleep and to manage my time a little bit more effectively. You know, um, it's kind of like years ago, I heard a nutritionist say, if you have a cut on your leg and, you know, you put an ice cream cone on it, it'll probably feel better momentarily. But, you know, it's the wrong, it's the wrong medicine for the problem. And food is usually the wrong medicine for the problem. And dieting is usually the wrong medicine for the problem. So this scientist who isn't a judge needs to start thinking about, well, what, what is the problem? And the final thing I'll say about that is I'm pretty smart. You're pretty smart. Your listeners are pretty smart. I don't know about you, but let's talk, talk about this weight thing. I've been working on this. Uh, since I was 12. Uh, I went on my first diet in the fall of 1969. I'm having not two different thoughts now than I was having then. 
52 years ago. Might be time to try something new. Just saying. And for the most part, I do. For the most part, I've turned off the radio station. I've turned off that show. But when these thoughts come back to me, instead of saying, oh, that's so uncomfortable. I hate that feeling. I know exactly what to do. I'm going to sign up. I'm going to buy. I'm going to journal. I'm going to do. I'm going to do. Instead of doing that, I say, just wait a minute. What is this really about? And that was a long-winded answer to your question about um, really about turning off this voice. But I think for women particularly, this kind of constant body policing, constant body self-hatred. And now I'm going to anticipate the counter-argument, which is, oh, but if I do that, I'll be 500 pounds and I'll do nothing but, you know, eat cake all day. No, you won't. No, as a matter of fact, guess what? You'll probably eat less. End of end of speech. Oh, that was so good, Suzanne. So good. I love the visualization of this station and how you can, you're watching a show on the station and you have a choice. You can keep that channel or you can consciously uh, turn the channel, turn the dial and land on another channel. And that's very similar. It's really interesting as you may or may not know, I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist. And so that's very mm. simple to what I teach people, mm-hmm. which is just having this awareness of your thoughts and knowing that we are not our thoughts. You know, our thoughts are separate and you can see, you can learn to get some distance from them and you can see them and decide, do I want to buy into this or not? And if not, I can turn the dial up on a new thought and I can learn to train my brain to think about the new thought. And by doing that, you automatically turn the volume down on that old thought. So I love how that process is enhanced with the visual of the station. Well, we live with a set of thoughts for so, I mean, this of course is how psychotherapy works. And also it turns out how memoir writing works. Um, We live with the same set of thoughts for so long that we no longer question them. And then one day we either start to write a book or, um, or we go to a therapist and we start saying, Hey, wait a minute, this thing that I've always thought was true. Maybe it's not true. Well, what about that? Maybe there's a different story to be told about this. And also, you know, just realizing that these things that we accept as truths are so subjective and so easily manipulated. I mean, for example, you know, we're all, we're all taking selfies all the time. Right. And, um, and you and I share an interest in fashion and taking, you know, selfies to, you know, share and, you know, talk about clothes and stuff, which is just super fun. So haven't you had this experience where you're taking those selfies and you look at one and you go, Oh no, 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 I'm not sending that one you know, I look horrible. I look fat. Look at my thighs. That's so horrible. And then not two seconds later, you take one where you look super hot. And now all of a sudden you're super hot. Did you change in two seconds? No, you did not. It's just, it's just you, it's just a manipulation. And I think the same thing goes on in our, in our, brains. I mean, as I, as I said recently, uh, somewhere else, you know, if you wake up feeling pretty good and the birds are singing, 
And by two in the afternoon, you're, you're consumed with the idea that you need to go on a diet. It's a really good chance that you, you, you didn't gain that much weight between 8 a.m. and 2 p.m. And that something else is going on for which the dieting is not going to be the solution. Some other emotion shifted that led something to else shifted. But we speak, we all are fluent in the language of dieting. And we all have the habit, I think, of translating our emotion uh, into that language. And we could have a whole nother deep dive into that, but I want to get to two other questions before yeah. I um, run out of time with you. Yeah. So I'm curious to hear a little bit more about work-life balance and how you have had, um, how you have achieved having such a successful career and raising children and nurturing a marriage and nurturing your own personal needs. What do you have to say about all of that? Oh, well, that's very easy. I mean, I'm like completely put together and have boundless energy and have a perfect husband, perfect children and a perfect employer. And I mean, that's really all it takes. No, 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 of course not. Uh, you know, look, it, it involved a series of, of compromises and imperfect choices. Um, some of which not everybody is so lucky to make. When my kids were very little, um, I elected to work part-time. Um, and I was very lucky, uh, you know, to be in a financial situation to be able to do that. Uh, as, as my kids grew up, uh, I, I was able to use that extra time to develop this other passion uh, for writing and for teaching rather than simply going back to full-time in my work. Uh, I think, you know, people ask me, you know, how do you have time to write a book and practice medicine? My response is usually I have time to do what I want to do. And I never have time to do what I don't want to do. And if you don't believe me, go look in my garage. I mean, I think that um, it really is a matter of constantly reminding yourself what's important to you. And, you know, if cooking is important to you, God bless. Uh, it isn't important to me. Now, I married a man who can cook, so I cheated. And then I raised, <laughs> I raised a son who can cook, so I double cheated. Um, but if, if I hadn't, I still don't think I'd be cooking. I just don't want to do it. And so I don't. Uh, and and um, so I... I, as everybody does, I stray from my values. And there are times when, you know, I'm sitting with my adorable grandchildren and, you know, feeling the itch to pick up my phone and check my email. That's not good. That's, you know, that's sort of straying from values and represents, I think, poor balance. Um, but I'm aware of it. And then I make um, a course correction. The other thing I would say is that I think everything, everything is about relationships. And so cultivating relationships at work um, uh, was incredibly important to me, uh, particularly when I needed to be cut some slack. When I had a kid who was sick for quite a long time, uh, when I had a mother who was sick for quite a long time, Having developed relationships that are mutually supportive at work, 
um, came in really handy and people were really good to me and I had been really good to them. So I, I think sort of remembering what your values are and cultivating relationships and having a sense of humor because so much of this stuff we get stressed out about is just so funny and so silly and so ridiculous. And at the end of the day, it often doesn't matter. More than often. Yeah. Do you find, so, I mean, I think that's a pretty fantastic, if you can do it, it's a pretty fantastic balance of being able to do both, you know, have time to be home with your family and then later have time to pursue your hobbies, but also be, um, still be entrenched in the medical field and the career that you first chose. Did you ever feel like, is it truly possible to, to be a professional part-time, you know what I mean? You know, Mm -hmm. Can you act as if you are full-time in the time that you are there, you know, hundred percent there yes. on top of what you need to be on top of. Yes. Um, even though you may only do it for 20 hours a week. I mean, yeah. yes. Uh, yes. Um, when I was uh, younger, I worried about that a lot. And particularly since I had trained in a very high powered program uh, in which the expectations of me that I was going to be, you know, a leader in my field. And, um, and I felt like a disappointment. Um, and now here I was, you know, at Harvard medical school, mass general, I mean, the sort of the, 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 the creme de la creme. And I felt like, you know, what am I? I'm like a part-time nobody. And uh, actually I, I, I'll tell you very briefly, I had an experience years ago that uh, this isn't in the book, but it's a good story. It should have been in the book, which is um, uh, I was in practice not too many years. I was working part time. I had two babies then on my way to having a third. And I was at a lecture by one of my colleagues who was an absolutely leader, you know, international leader. And he was talking about his research. And I was sitting there and I was just feeling really down. And I thought, gosh, this is the train that left the station and I wasn't on it. And this was the train I was supposed to be on. And look at you, you are a loser. Well, I was actually, um, I was in therapy then. And um, I told my therapist this, this story. And then all of a sudden I started laughing and he said, what's so funny. And I said, this guy, this big shot, he said, yeah. I said, he sends his parents to me as patients. So I, you know, I wasn't, um, you know, I, I, I wasn't, um, and still I'm not, um, you know, disingenuous about the limits of, of what I have done or can do, but I did other things. And, um, and I did what was right for me. And I think, look, when you're young, you think you're going to do everything. You know, you're going to, I used to say, I'm dating myself now. I used to say like, you're going to be a doctor and you're going to sing back back up for Springsteen. Well, guess what? You're not. And, you know, and you're going to, you know, play for the Red Sox. I mean, you're not. And I think you, you sort of, you sort of reach this coming to terms with the fact that you do the best you can you make the choices you make and, and, you know, it's, it's really okay. It's really okay. 
you don't have to be perfect across the board and excel to the, you know. The yes. And the opposite of being perfect isn't being a fraud. Mm-hmm. I am neither perfect nor a fraud. And you are not perfect, nor are you a fraud. And nobody here listening is perfect and nobody here is a fraud. Does that mean you shouldn't be aspirational? Does that mean that if you're a doctor, you shouldn't be keeping up and you shouldn't be going the extra mile and then some for your patients, for your family? Of course not. It doesn't mean, you know, being a slug. That's not the opposite of, you know, it's not like we're either self-castigating or completely, you know, capitulating to entropy. Um, But those are big words. I have no idea what you just said. (laughs) Okay. What I just said. All right. Let me translate. I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. What I just said is it's not like, I think sometimes we think, okay, I have a choice of two things. And it's like exactly like what we're saying about dieting. I can work really hard Um, or I can be self-accepting in which case I'll just be a complete slug, but those aren't what the choices are. You know, the, it's somewhere in between the, the image I think of is that I feel like a lot of life is trying to figure out how tight to grip the steering wheel. If you, if you don't, hold the steering wheel at all, the car will crash. And if you grip it really so tight, you can't even steer it. That doesn't work either. Plus you get really crampy hands. You have to figure out just how much structure you need, just how much effort you need, just how much of of all of that is right for you, how much spontaneity you need, how much leisure you need, How much is right for you? And you know what? We all intuitively know what the sweet spot is. We all intuitively have had these moments of perfect presence. Some of us, you know, maybe you experience it when like you're on a wonderful day at the beach or, you know, it's your daughter's wedding and you think this day could last forever. It's just pure joy. I don't need to be anywhere else. Well, we could have those moments more often. And, and I think we know what that feels like. And it doesn't feel like being perfectly on track or perfect. And it also doesn't mean, you know, I'm totally self-accepting and I don't need to put any effort into anything. Neither of those is true. Oh, Suzanne, you are so wise. You are so wise. And I thank you so much for sharing I know this is, we really just scratched the surface here. You have so much wisdom to share and so many thoughts to share um, in this reflective phase that you're in right now. Um, I think I want to end with one other question and it's a little selfish. I'd love to have a whole nother conversation on the process of writing your book, because I think I've mentioned to you that I have a book in the works um, Mm. and I think it means as much to me as writing this book means to you. So I'm definitely curious to pick your brain about that, but I'm going to save that for another time. I think I just want to ask you, um, as we wrap up, just what does it mean to have this memoir completed, you know, to have put your heart and soul into writing it, thinking about the, the message that you're sending, the audience that you're speaking to, the memories that you're capturing, what is it like to have it in a completed product? Oh, what a big, big question. You know, 
um, uh, it took me several years to do it. A lot of the process was really hard and I couldn't see the end of it. It took a lot of people to prop me up when I felt like I was falling. What it feels like now, it feels, you'll laugh at this analogy, it feels a little bit like when I learned how to drive a stick shift, which is, I didn't think I could do it. Um, it didn't really seem like something a person like me would actually be able to do because it is just, you know, I don't know. That's just wouldn't be the kind of thing I would, you would guess I would know how to do. And yet once I, I did it, it now became part of me. And this feels both very much part of me, but also very much behind me. What's uh, an irony of book writing is that just when you're leaving it behind is when everybody else is first opening it up. Mm. And, and one writer described this, uh, the book tour in a kind of funny way, uh, saying that going on a, on a book tour is kind of like attending your own funeral over and over again, which is sort of a, which is sort of a funny way of thinking about it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly very grateful to be able to do this. Um, but all of the immediacy and the blood, sweat, and tears that went into this are in my rearview mirror. Um, I feel very grateful and very um, happy and very satisfied. Uh, there were many, many, many years when I walked around bookstores fantasizing that I'd have a book on the shelves. There were many, many vacations where I sat around thinking, you know, I wish I had written a book. And, and I have. And um, sharing it with people who find it moving is one of the most gratifying, wonderful experiences I've ever had. That is outstanding. That really so I highly recommend it, doing it. I'm going to keep your words in my head. And I, um, you know, I have others in, who I know are listening that I know from the writing community. And I know that they will appreciate that as well. So, um, like I said, I'm, I definitely am going to pick your brain and maybe we'll have you on again to talk more about the writing process. But I just want to thank you so much for being on today and sharing your wisdom and your great sense of humor. And let's just um, wrap up. So if people want to find more information about you, can you just name your website for us in case they want to look that up? It's very easy to remember. It's just my name. It's SuzanneCoven.com. And that's K-O-V-E-N. Yep. K-O-V-E-N. All right. Super. Thank you again. And I'm sure we will talk soon. Thanks so much, Carol. Okay. Thanks everyone for listening. See you next time. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Healthy Habits for Life. If you loved today's episode, please follow me on iTunes and leave a five-star rating and review. These are so important and will enable others like you to find this podcast. Also, please share this podcast with your friends you know would also love it so we can get the word out. Thanks again for joining me. Until next week.